Hello everyone and welcome to Girls Gone Canon. We are watching this time His Dark Materials, not reading. We're here to discuss Season 1, Episode 2, The Idea of North. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl or Arithmetric, depending on the medium. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me as Liza Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, or LizaNarborGold.com. And you guys, we are covering spoilers from the main trilogy. That is, of course, Northern Lights or the Golden Compass, the Subtle Knife, and the Amber Spyglass. So if you aren't really keen in on those, you might want to log off for now and come back later. Unless you're ready to be spoiled, come on in. However, if you do want to hear some of our takes that are a little less spoilery, we are doing a reread of the His Dark Materials books. We just wrapped up our read-through of the first book, Northern Lights or the Golden Compass. And wow, is it a doozy. <laughs> so the first part of our read-through episodes, we do more or less spoiler-free, more or less, more or less than more, and then we end it with a discussion that covers material from all three of the books, and sometimes an even deeper, dustier discussion with information from the Book of Dust. Yeah, it was great ending the books. When we started this read-through, I had not read them, Eliad, and by the time we finished the chapters of The Northern Lights, I have read everything, and Eliana has not read everything. I have read up to the Secret Commonwealth, so the student has surpassed the master of Jordan, which is Eliana in this example. It's so poetic. I'm really glad that this happened. I'm actually very pleased. I'm so glad you're proud of me. I fulfilled my destiny. (laughs) Yeah. On one hand, Chloe's like, this is great, but on the other hand, she's like, Eliana, (laughs) catch the fuck up. (laughs) Please read the rest of the I also enjoy that it's like, in the words of the great Kate Bush... Chloe, 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 <laughs> Chloe. So also amongst the things that we have done that are His Dark Materials related, we had a Patreon <laughs> episode in which we watched the Golden Compass movie. And honestly, there's a lot of things that are similar to the movie in terms of its execution in in, in this television series. Yeah, a lot of it is kind of tonally off, but... There's a lot of similarities. Last episode, Mm -hmm. we talked a lot about Coulter's entrance and how they were in prayer and everyone just kind of like stops and is like, oh, like, here she comes. Helen High Heels. Uh, Totally Helen High Heels trope. And same thing in, of course, the movie in The Golden Compass directed by Chris White's. It's a great, great episode where we dissect all of it. (laughs) Like, why, what happened? Yeah, there's that. There's having Billy Costa, right, be the one with the demon ratter, as well as having Lyra knock the glass Mm -hmm. out of Lord Asriel's hand instead of just whispering no. Yeah, there's a lot, too, in this coming episode we're going to talk about. But first, we did get some emails and tweets of note from some of our friends on the internet. I want to start off with something a little light from our friend Ari Sunshine, who sent us a very fun tweet that basically is, that says no one, and then Lyra and Mrs. Coulter, and then we have a clip from the award-winning Nickelodeon <laughs> television so show. Uh, Victorious, which is, as many of you might know, where Ariana Grande got her start. It's not yes. where she first started, but it's it's where she, you know, started becoming a little, uh, a little more known. So, yeah. anyway, yeah, someone a, says... It's a tweet. 
Yeah, there's there's someone asking, what are you doing? And this girl says, none of your stupid business. And obviously it's edited for for younger audiences. Audiences mm-hmm. maybe around the same age as those reading these books. Because we all know it's supposed to say, none of your fucking business. But <laughs> It's pretty much what it felt like the whole episode, too. I was like, yeah. damn, that was... Whew. We're going to get into it very soon. It was an intense episode. We got another email from our good friend, Shadow Fox, our patron. He said that the issues he had with this episode are, why is Mrs. Coulter's demon, which uh, Philip Pullman has said affectionately that if he had to name it, it probably would be named Malice at this point. Why is it sneaking around Coulter's apartment? Like, there are handrails and the ducts for him. It's interesting. Why? Just why? Okay. That's a good issue, I guess. I don't know issue, but I do think it's an interesting concern. The reporter didn't turn to dust once her demon was killed. We are going to talk about this in just a bit, so hang on to that one under your hat. The exposition dumps. The reporter, Coulter's argument, finding the plans. It felt too convenient and like there was too much information. And then, of course, he said, Boreal, is this removing the dramatic tension of the big reveal at the end of the series, our first book, about the different worlds? I feel like we're going to cover a lot of those in depth later, but yeah, I do feel like that exposition dump one, uh, I felt like it felt fine. Uh, Lyra needed confirmation from several places. It's actually quite similar to how it's executed in the books, I would say, too. Mm -hmm. With She doesn't even find the plans, and I thought that one was a little more clumsily Mm -hmm. done in the movie, right? She looks at the plans and she goes, G-O-B. She's like, General Ablation Board, (laughs) G-O-B. Gob. Gobbler. And I'm like, whoa. (laughs) We did a lot of word association just now, and I think that was a step too far. It was definitely far. a pull. Good job. A pullman. Congrats. But, <laughs> whereas in, in the books, it's also at the party, right, mm-hmm. where Lyra realizes the general ablation board from the reporter having just a casual conversation. She's like, oh yeah, duh, G-O-V, that's why they're calling it the Gobblers. And so, as for Mrs. Coulter's argument, hmm. I don't know, I, I don't mind it taking place there it feels unfortunate and perhaps true right Mm -hmm. they're pulling perhaps from not everyone's homes were like this but of course some people who came from homes in which their parents had a very nasty separation and perhaps toxically so might sort of expunge information about the other Mm -hmm. right yeah i didn't i didn't feel awful about it i think it felt dramatically fine i think it added more weight to that argument and to a scene that's already so iconic, right? Mm-hmm. That's an iconic scene. The iconic scene is, of course, Coulter's demon beating the crap out of Pan and beating Lyra into submission. That is what that scene's all about. It's about power. We're going to talk about the power that's displayed in that scene in just a bit. Mm-hmm. I think it works. I do think that uh, it coming from Farter Quorum is a little better only be- only because of just like the connections the story has now and now that you know what happened in the great floods and etc uh you'll get a little more information as you get into La Belle Sauvage and the secret commonwealth so it doesn't feel awful i think that farter quorum was a more comfortable choice and a safe choice and overall a lot of these changes that are happening i think that you know Pullman did produce and he did approve the scripts this isn't butchery and it's it also could be a lot of you know hindsight like is 2020 right like maybe he's fine with this new fresh take on it and he thought you know i didn't think about the story in this manner when i told it and this might be a smoother way to do so and i do think it's a good adaptive choice to get it out now 
because it seems like they're barreling on fast. Yeah, and I, I think I'm going to come back to what I think ends up happening, regardless of intent and whether it's good or bad, but what it tells us about the mm-hmm. story and Mrs. Coulter's character for her to be the one that this reveal comes through, what the story is doing uh, when we get when we yeah, discuss that. Yeah, you know, scene. Shadow Fox did say that the light the likes of the episode, you know, the highlights for them was Ruth Wilson's interactions with Lyra, right? It was amazing. Her performance uh, showed some cracks in the armor, yep. some emotional instability when she lets slip about Asriel, when she's like in the bath scene contemplating the urge to jump. I think he says that he thinks these scenes plus her acting really lets us understand Mrs. Coulter's complicated character and what a multifaceted, layered character she actually is. And I agree with that. Ruth Wilson was the MVP of this episode. I don't... If you watch this, just her tone, the way she flipped between, and the way yeah. her lips smiled when she burns the letters, her face. <laughs> yeah. She she really nails a lot of it. And I mean, she's been nailing it since the first episode. Like, sometimes her face doesn't even move, but you can tell exactly what the emotion is. And she conveys it. Like, for example, her displeasure with Roger mm-hmm. speaking to Lyra at She dinner. didn't even have to move. It was a reverie. She didn't move at all, but it was clear what was happening there. Yeah, it was amazing. So she she's just been doing an incredible performance. Maybe I'm blinded. Maybe maybe we are. Is she the Lena Headey of this show? Her shoulders probably hurt just as much, you know? I don't know. I, don't I, know. I think so, but I think that everyone else is doing a really no, good job right now, good. too. I'm, like, blown away by uh, Farter Quorum as Elsie Mormont, mm-hmm. Lord Commander Mormont from Game of Thrones. That is, like, I didn't know if I would like it. I yeah. told you this before. We've talked about it on the cast before. I love it. I think he's a perfect Farter Quorum. And all I can see is just, like, no spoilers, but him in the future. And it just makes me happy. Yeah. I love it. I like that they made him more gruff as opposed yeah. to bumbling old man, which is how he's kind of in the movie. But still a sweet grandpa. Yeah. But they're, yeah, all, they're all sweet. And that's that's the thing about Farter Quorum and John Faw, and you see it in this episode, mm-hmm. right? They're both mm-hmm. sweet in different ways, and they both play off each other. Yeah. That relationship's so clear. This John Fa is definitely growing on me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh, we did get another tweet from Tiger Woman Bride, and it was about the golden monkey, and I thought it was interesting. Yes. So the tweet says, The golden monkey species was on seven worlds, one planet on the BBC as well. They live in really cold forests and have snubbed noses because they're less likely to get frostbite. Well huh. suited for a trip to Bolvangar. Interesting. That's very interesting. I have seen the screenshot of the Seven Worlds episode. Yeah, I, I thought it was funny. I was like, when I first saw it, I was thinking, this is a weird historic materials promo. Then I realized, no, this is, a, <laughs> <laughs> this is actually about our real life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that's a great detail about the type of monkey that they chose. Because there are different, several different kinds of monkeys that they could have chosen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I love seeing the golden lion tamarins when I go to the zoo. They're so small and fluff and shiny. Mm-hmm. But this is not that species. I do want to say that last episode, I was maybe a little sacrilege saying I didn't know if the monkey lived up to it. This episode, the monkey killed it. I was, uh, I felt the monkey. The monkey killed it. I Maybe I wasn't in touch with my monkey. Like, that's what I am. I'm a 92 baby. So, you're the monkey. 
And maybe I just was like rejecting my monkey ship. But here I am accepting it because this episode, the monkey killed it literally. It was just like out there dominating. It was nuts. I was like, wow, I'm I'm afraid. Well, you know me. I was there. I was like, this monkey's chill. You knew the whole time. You knew the whole time. I was wrong. I I just like ugly animals. I don't think it's ugly. I find I find it really charming. I don't think yeah, it's that you like ugly selfish. animals. I think you just appreciate all animals. Let me think about that more deeply at some point in my life. I was scrolling on the subreddit, which the other day in our last episode for Northern Lights, the Golden Compass, we talked about some of the other great podcasts in the community. We'll link that on this description as well. The reddits have been great. The subreddits have been really fun. Fun memes. Lots of good discussion going on in the His Dark Materials. My little boy! (laughs) My little boy! The meme about someone from The Subtle Knife that we'll talk about today, for sure. Lots of good stuff happening in the subreddits, including this post from YGSVHIYM. I'm not going to attempt it because I don't think it's a real... I googled it. I don't know. Whatever. But they posted about alchemy in his Dark Materials. I'll link this in the cut as well. They basically talked about how the elite theometer has hidden parallels to real-life alchemy and Philosopher's Stone. The show elite theometer, book canon and not movie canon, uh, the show elite theometer has two words engraved on it. Kunroth and M-D-C-V-I-I-I. But in book lore, Pavel Kunroth made the alethiometer, and he died in 1612, meaning that 1608, M-D-C-V-I-I-I, is the year that the alethiometer was likely created. And Pavel is a real-life parallel to Heinrich Kunroth from the second half of the 16th century, who died in 1605, and he cites something called prima materia in his works, prime material. It was thought to be the ingredient in making a philosopher's stone. They also talk in this post about the pre-Socratic Paracelsus, who talked about Eliaster, which meant to be similar and cause of the Big Bang. It was matter, basically, that caused the Big Bang, released by a quote-unquote master who created chaos and life on Earth. So it could basically be translated from Eliaster to prime matter of body and soul, and demons are linked directly to primem matter, dust. So basically, the too long don't read is that the markings on the alethiometer refer to its creation by a character whose real life equivalent was an alchemist condemned by religious powers of his time for researching real life prima materia or dust. This is very, very interesting. I am really glad that you found this post and brought it in. And there's a fun Easter egg that shows all the detail and attention that's being put into crafting this show. I think that's why I'm not mad about a lot of these changes too and these adaptive kind of things they're doing because I think it's fresh. I think it's fun. Really respecting the lore and the world building because if it's something that Pullman does, it's world build, right? Like you feel like each world you understand. I can see Sitagaze in my mind right now without even closing my eyes. Yeah. I can see the tower. I can see the the brick walkways. I can just feel it all. I think that's really cool. The stony walkways in my mind. I just love that I can see that. I can see the world of the dead. Uh, I can see the cliff ghasts in my brain. He really painted a picture well. And they're. I think they're doing that. There, there's some things they're adapting and skipping and skimping. And, you know, I can see that's going to happen in the future, too. I don't expect the harpies to be perfect. I don't expect uh, certain things to be perfect. We'll see what happens. 
the Gala Vespians, you know, that'll be interesting, as we talked about last week, but <laughs> mm. I think stuff like this is really nice, and it shows an understanding of the story, which I think is important here. Absolutely. So, that brings us, of course, to actually discussing what happens in the episode. We're just gonna go scene by scene, hit them all real quick. There's a lot of really cool cutovers in between scenes. We'll get into later where Lyra is with Coulter, but then we're shown something happening simultaneously, cutting back and forth. And I thought that was a great effect this episode. But we actually start with a view of airships over London, and it pans to flat. Coulter bringing Lyra into her beautiful new penthouse apartment. It's straight out of the Sims 4 Get Famous pack. Coulter shows her around, tells her never go in the secret study ever. No red flags. And Lyra is romanced by its dazzle and sparkle. Pan, of course, is skeptical. I like how when Lyra first gets out of the car, she's like, do you own the whole building? And Mrs. Coulter's like, no, don't be ridiculous. Don't Just be ridiculous. Floor. Like, oh, so you're still fucking loaded. Excuse me. Like, I own the whole floor. Okay, whatever. And yeah, it, it's a gorgeous apartment. And it's interesting that you said Sims 4 get famous pack. I was thinking fucking West Elm. Oh my god. Right? Everything's from West Elm. But like, uh, just to talk a little bit about some of the decorations of her apartment, a lot of her ornaments, a lot of the, the sidewalls and some of the, the tables, right, are very much in an art deco style. But interestingly, a lot of the seating, for example, the seat at her study, when when she like talks with Lyra and other places, are in a mid-century modern style. So... We're somewhere around there. She's a classic woman, but also knows how to mix the two together. And I think you can see a lot about Mrs. Coulter by her furniture choices. Uh, I mean, you can also say a lot about her from, like, the way she murders children. But anyways, Roger and Billy Costa reunite very briefly. They just see each other. They're in a room together. And then we skip into the dusty intro. You guys, it's so HBO. Yes. Every week I'm just like... This show has a lot of HBO. It has some BBC vibes, don't get me wrong. This is as someone who's like a Doctor Who watcher since I was really young. Um, but it, it's also very HBO. The BBC part of it is actually doing really good. It, it's pulling your heartstrings. I mean, I cried in this episode. That says a lot. It's the second episode and I was like in tears. So I was like, this yeah. is good. They're doing good. I mean, I really like the the intro. And we discussed it a little last week, but... There's more things to say now. Yeah, absolutely. Last week you called out some really cool stuff in the intro, like the slicing of the letters. Eofer on Tumblr actually made a post about it and talked about us talking about it, which was cool because I was like, yeah, that's what I, th I... I just thought it was the coolest catch. I did not notice... I, I guess I noticed it, but it was very subliminal to me. I was just like, oh yeah, whatever. The letters fall apart because cutting. I just moved on. I'm just impressed that Eofer got that handle on tumblr i thought you were gonna say that eofer understood it i was like me too because he's dead so lauren belf if you guys are looking for a better breakdown on some of the music that lauren belf is creating check out this podcast they are covering lauren belf extensively matt is covering it in his parts of the episodes but lauren belf did the lyrics in latin which are based on virgil the latin poet and there have been some rough translations that have been passed around. I cannot read Latin. So again, I did not take Latin. I took two other romance languages that people actually speak today. But we're going to give it a go. It's Ciceros immortalis aduint harus species incipit parvuli. Incipit parvuli 
procedant mensis magni insipit insipit. Or maybe it's insipite. I don't know. I was thinking it was insipite, but I didn't know. Fuck it. I don't know. <laughs> I studied f- all f- Spanish and French, and in French you don't That's pronounce close. a bunch of the letters, so. No, I get it. Yeah, French, you just skip over it, and then you have a yeah. cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? So the rough translation to all of this kind of comes to, they hear immortal whispers. Begin, children, and read the omens. Begin, children, for time passes quickly by. Begin, begin. I wonder if it's supposed to foreshadow the lithiometer reading and kind of that loss of being able to read it and that loss of innocence over when adolescence is over. I think it's that. I think it's a lot of things. Like when I first read the line Immortal Whispers, I remembered that the witches said that they knew of the child of prophecy because they were to hear whispers from the mm. other worlds. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think that there's something to what you're saying about read, reading the omens. There's a immortal whispers also uh, reminds me of a couple things. We're going to go down this weird chain of a poem called whispers of immortality by T.S. Eliot, which is much more about death as opposed to immortality because T.S. Eliot was, you know, he was like that, a bit of a troll. More like extra. But not really a troll. I don't know. He was a modernist when it came to literature and was therefore responding in many ways to a lot of previous literature. And one of those includes a poem called Intimations of Immortality. Mm-hmm. So you can see how Whispers of Immortality would uh, respond to Intimations of Immortality by the poet Wordsworth, uh, which mm-hmm. is more about childhood and a sort of longing, but at the same time celebration of it, versus T.S. Eliot's focus on death and decay. And there's a line that kind of reminds me of the alethiometer in it, where Wordsworth, again, this is about childhood, says, Mighty poet, seer, blessed, on whom those truths do rest, which we are tolling all our lives to find. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just imagining, especially with all the research, and we talked about this last week, but Pullman has said, you know, I do research, but you don't let your research become your book. You take that research yeah. and you utilize it so that the research, you know, just affords your book. You, The story is learned from the research and the story adds parts to incorporate but it doesn't revolve around it and it's like you know Pullman just like laid there reading T.S. Eliot and William Blake and shoving you know Paradise Lost up his butt just reading these for like days and weeks and months as he wrote these and those were obviously big inspirations and I think you're onto something with that one too he has to have read it obviously yeah, he has to have. I mean, like, he was teaching yeah. English for a while. And uh, speaking of poetry, there's one more that you actually ta- talked about just now. You said that the lyrics are based on, on stuff made mm-hmm. by Virgil, the Latin poet, who Dante kind of writes this very elaborate fan fiction, this very big erotic friend <laughs> oh fiction. You might have heard of it. It's called The Divine Comedy. <laughs> Never heard of it. I'm just kidding. Obviously, I have. Uh, yeah. So obviously, uh, the most famous of these is the Inferno, right? And he goes through the the afterlife and all of these things, you know, like hell, and then and then like another part, and then he makes it all the way up to heaven, and Virgil is his guide. But I mean, we talked a little more in depth about some elements of the Inferno that make its way into the books, perhaps in our end of Northern Lights episode, but. It kind of makes sense for the series as a whole, if you think about it, especially with the Amber Spyglass and going into different worlds. Yeah, if this is the Inferno, then it's like, truly, we're all just in hell. 
Yeah. Though yeah. so if you think about it, you can combine the Alethiometer and Virgil in some ways, right? Because the Alethiometer serves as Lyra's guide through all the different worlds, as Virgil kind of does, but not really. He's like a he's okay as a guide. So speaking of hell and the almighty leaders of it, Mrs. Coulter has breakfast with Lyra on the balcony. Looks nice. Eliana's got a cool balcony-ish thing. I was like, "That's how ha- this whole scene is Eliana's place." Me. <laughs> oh, I've never been sure about them heights. Oh. I can never get away from the occasional urge to jump. And by me, I mean Mrs. Coulter. Oh, so like, so I watched this episode a little drunk. Okay, I had had a little bit of wine to drink. I was very excited about the episode, and like an hour before, I just kept drinking wine. I guess. So, like, by the time I watched it, I was a little sauced. I wasn't, like, bomb, but I was like, ooh, I'm a little loopy. And I was so excited about everything. I think I was hitting my partner on the side, just like, oh, my God, did you see that? Oh, my God, that's so cool they did that. Oh, that's so smart. But when she said this, it was so early on in the episode, and I was just like, I see you guys. Mm-hmm. I get it. Mrs. Coulter, not sure about heights and jumping. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Metatron. Yeah, it's absolutely... It's absolutely her jumping in off into the abyss. As much as it is about, of course, her own, like, self-hate, I guess, but... Interestingly enough, I do think it paints her obviously really well. Like, they're obviously fleshing her out and making us really struggle with her so hard. And I think this is important to establish her ending. Yeah, yeah. And for, you know, the Amber Spyglass and some of the questionable things that she happens to do. For sure. I do really love the way... They capture the awkwardness of the scene, right? Because she says that really weird thing. And you start to see some of the darkness within Mrs. Coulter, which she's struggling with. And Lyra's like, this was a lie. <laughs> she just kind of turns away. She's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know how to respond. I'm 11. I like that the red flags were definitely cropping up early on in this episode. Like, okay, this is weird. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those certain coming out more right when they go to lunch at the arctic institute yeah lyra won't behave she's like i just want to look at all the cool shit like the pantser born skull which uh mm-hmm. i know the whole time i was like can't they just say pantser born to make eliana happy and they didn't she called him an armored bear still but if you actually saw the his dark materials twitter account released the title card that was on display of the skull and it said The skull of this medium-sized adult male was brought back after being killed during the height of the Skraling conflict. It's preserved with the piece of armor it was found with. As is custom for the Pantherborn, they build their metal from meteoric metal known as sky iron. Their armor is the nearest thing they have to a demon. So totally, like, official extra uh, props and stuff that they're just, like, posting about and showing. There was also... A follow-up piece that showed another sculpture there at the Institute that had, like, a a title thing on it that talked about Leif Erikson's son discovering it. Mm. So, really cool. Really, they're going all out and showing the detail. Again, it's just another thing that I just go, wow, mad respect. And I think the reason why Lyra wouldn't say the word Panzerbjorn is, remember, at this point in the story, she doesn't know Mm Panzerbjorn means armored bear. She doesn't put the two together until much later on, so. That works. We'll call it canon. And it. Yeah, they didn't even say it in the retiring room, mm-hmm. right? As as they had in the books. Mm-hmm. They didn't really talk about Yofer Rackinson. So, anyways, this is a really, really interesting scene. As they sit back down, Mrs. Coulter charms Lyra back to the table and says, 
and gets her to sit. I can see why she's she's being a complete child, mm-hmm. which I mean she's a child as she wants to do. And then Lyra asks Mrs. Coulter what they're going to do. Yeah, what are we going to do about Roger? Which is obviously what Mrs. Coulter is all about right now. <laughs> Lyra's like yeah. talking to her, and she says the saddest thing. It just bummed me out, so I have to repeat it now. It's like you said in Jordan, child's eyes, useful. When you look at the original plot of kind of what Coulter was trying to do with her in Northern Lights, the Golden Compass, it was to employ her as, you know, an asset, as an assistant to help traffic children. And it was going to be pretty much against her knowledge. Like, she wasn't going to tell her that's what she was doing. She was just going to say, go get this kid and convince him to come with us to go north on our expedition. Oh, too bad. Sorry about your friend dying. Sorry about the new kid dying. Oops. Whoops. Mm-hmm. That was her plan. It's a fucked up plan. Yeah. But I think what's very iconic about this scene and that we realize about Mrs. Coulter, right? And she points out to Lyra, she's like, look around this room. How many other women do you see mm-hmm. here? And it's just, it's just the two of them. And she tells Lyra that she can teach her the the skills that she'll need in order to have power in this world of men. Yeah. And that she can mold her into something special. I thought it was a really interesting scene on power. I mean, that is what this episode's about. It's about showing power, who has it, who does what with it, who wields it. And Coulter mm-hmm. tells her that. And uh, one of my complaints that will come up on is how, and it's a very minor complaint, but it's that Lyra doesn't get to see a lot of the femininity in Adele Warminster. In the books, Adele Warminster, the journalist, is kind of chit-chatting with some yeah. scholars and being flirty and Lyra watches it and it's like her scene where she realizes oh this girl's doing flirting for a different reason and Coulter is really the other big source of femininity and later on with the priest coming to Coulter's flat and all of that there, there's an interesting display of power and Lyra sees the power transfer from person to person and who actually has the power and who does not so I think this episode really, really established power and structure. Yes, absolutely. And that's absolutely part of why Mrs. Coulter calls Lyra back, right? She's like, we need to show them that we can control ourselves and that way we can control them, I guess. And then she afterwards offers Lyra, all right, so who do you want me to introduce you to first? Yep. I, th- I There's a small thing that I wanted to call out here uh, showing kind of the world that they live in. The... Chef brings Mrs. Coulter, without her even asking, a dish at first, and they're sweetbreads. Mm -hmm. And I just want to elaborate on what sweetbreads means, because, interestingly, neither of them eat it, so we don't get Lyra's reaction to it. Sweetbreads does not necessarily mean pastries, and that gives you a sort of sense of what kind of place the Arctic Institute is in terms of it's full of explorers, and therefore a more expansive culinary palette, right? Sweetbread is a name that can refer to things like the throat, gullet, neck, parts that people, as we as we know of, don't usually eat of the animal, right? Like, it's not quite awful, O-F-F-A-L. Uh, sometimes it refers to ovaries and testicles of animals, but it isn't literally a bread that is sweet and a pastry. It's all—it's an interesting metaphor when you think about it, that it's something like savory and it's something you wouldn't immediately think of when eating a cut of meat. You don't immediately go for that. You think, I want a T-bone if you're a meat eater, but 
it's also interesting because it's something that's savory and maybe not the first thing you'd want to eat called a sweet bread. So something that looks really, really good and beautiful and wrapped in a satin dress on the outside, but when you get to the inside, it's disguised. You know, it's some, it's a misnomer. It's completely a misnomer. It's definitely something metaphorically that you're like, oh, would you like some sweet bread, child? Come into my lair. All of a sudden, you're in a trap. This wasn't sweet bread. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's absolutely... A valued dish in many places, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's called sweet because some of the meat might be sweet compared to other like savory parts of the mm-hmm. meat. But uh, and apparently bread might come from bread, meaning roasted meat. Yeah, it's supposed to be really like marginally juicy. It's supposed to be tender. But yeah. Anyway, then we cut away from the Arctic Institute to a different place entirely, somewhere that isn't. The height of privilege. It's the Egyptians planning their attack. Yeah, it's a short scene. Uh, Benjamin is taking a big leadership role. And you saw the preview for episode three, right? Benjamin is out on a mission in the preview for episode three. So everyone say goodbye to Benjamin. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. motherfucker dead. The next episode, right, is called The Spies. And I believe that correlates with what happens in... Yeah. And that's what I do. I'm kind of excited about this change because... It's not exactly a change, but we know that Benjamin went out on a secret mission to go do some shit, mm-hmm. and that was it. So the fact that they're showing this, and this is what Benjamin was taking and doing covert ops on, I think that's really smart. I love that they're showing the other side of all of these different factions involved in the story. Yeah, I think they're doing a really good job in thus like building suspense, showing mm-hmm. how how big this world is. And I we'll talk about it a little later. I love that they're focusing so much on Roger, yeah, and his story. I think that's really good. But also, we talked about how there were hints that it's going to focus more on Roger at the end of episode one. But at the same time, like that kid was too well cast. You can't waste an actor like that. No, he's doing a great job. He's so good. I was proud of him. Uh. uh. Like, who, what's going to happen when you get Will? What are you going to do about your baby boys? My little boy! You're just going to replace Roger with Will. That's what Lyra does. Yeah, it is. Because that's what Lyra does. And we'll come back to this in a second. Coulter gives Lyra a bath in the next scene. They talk about giving Lyra a new hairstyle, and she starts to tell a story, although it could be false, of Roger climbing her once long hair. Coulter tells her very sharply, Total change of mood. Don't lie to me. And she then goes into the speech that Lyra has potential but needs to be prepared to change because she could be extraordinary. So what's remarkable about this scene is when we get the hints, right, of what Mrs. Coulter is about. Because when she tells Lyra, don't lie to me, she grabs Lyra by the hair and turns her head to look at her. It's it, it's a violent scene, yeah. in a way. This whole episode is just, like, very violent and very abusive. Yeah. But you start getting hints of it here. And then you see the monkey turned away. Interestingly, Mrs. Coulter doesn't make Pan turn away here, as she does in the books and in the movie. I was waiting for but, it, too. I thought there was a moment, and then yeah. it didn't happen. I never realized it before in previous versions of the scene, but I think there's a little bit of something to Mrs. Coulter taking Lyra into the bath and the whole idea of Mrs. Coulter doing the ablations and trying to keep kids from getting dusty, allegedly. And it's that idea of not wanting them to be dusty and this idea of trying to keep Lyra clean, innocent, within the bath. Yeah. Baptismal, little. Keep her innocent and young. Yeah. 
Anyway. And I mean, she does this when she dresses her up in a couple scenes. She, uh, it's very mm-hmm. much infantizing her and, uh, very much so just turning her, like, into a doll almost. Which yeah. we get into later on with Eofer Ragnarok. That's his name. It's Ragnarok or whatever, mm. but I'm just going to call him Eofer Ragnarok because Ragnarok is the best movie. Thor Ragnarok, the best movie ever created. That's my decades list, Eliana. Thor Ragnarok. So Thor Ragnarok, the bear, has the demon doll that he got from Coulter that, you know, resembles Coulter. Um, well, Lyra comes along. She's like, I'm your demon. Well, that's what is being done to her right now. She's being dressed up as a demon doll. That's what Coulter's doing with her. She's made her into her little pet, just like Pan says in the books. Mm-hmm. Pan doesn't like any of this. He tells Lyra later, and she, this is when I cried. I'm going to be honest with you all. This made me cry. This is a Chloe cried alert, because Lyra is like, you know, she's nice to me, and we deserve to have nice things for once, Pan. And he's like, yeah, we do. And then she says, no one's ever said I could be extraordinary before. Yeah. That hurts. I'm sad. getting sad right now. We can't talk about it. We got to keep going. I'm going to cry. Oh, I, wanna, I was going to talk about something in this. Okay, I'll just cry alone. Okay. I, th- I think it's interesting that at this point, right, as we see Lyra getting more experience and realizing the difference between appearance and what's actually within and what people are like, right, and it changes at the end of the books, she's conflating being nice with being given nice things. Yeah. And of course, it's also that Mrs. Coulter said that she could be extraordinary, but we're seeing throughout these moments, I'm like, Mrs. Coulter's not really treating her that nice. Mm -mm. But she doesn't know yet. She just is mistaking that all that glitters is not gold, as we've talked about many times. Uh, And she's she's swept away by the dazzle of women can do things. You know, like, oh, wow, Mrs. Coulter's a scholar. That's not something I ever knew was possible. The only woman she knew was Mrs. Lonsdale, the housekeeper who isn't in this show. (sighs) But I digress. Sorry, did I just, did I flip a switch a little bit? Did I Coulter out there? Maybe you did. (laughs) During all of this, it flashes to Mrs. Coulter at the bathtub, still full of water. And she's contemplative. She's deep in thought. She's kind of staring. She's disassociative. And then she pulls the drain kind of violently and walks out eventually. And what's remarkable, she pulls the drain and makes that motion immediately after making eye contact with her demon. And it leads to what we see later, right? With that, her and the demon, the next tense moment with them that we see a little bit later Mm -hmm. on. But uh, it's sad. It's a sad little moment. It is. um, These bubble scenes like this are like really touchingly deep, like... Uh, yeah. they're really, really, Ruth Wilson is obviously providing so much service right now to us, right? Like, she is just mm-hmm. killing it as Mrs. Coulter, but Mrs. Coulter is just as much servicing her in this. Like, the, the role is so depthful. I, I don't know. It's just, like, such a complex role. She's doing a great job, though, yeah. of showing uh, those ruminating. And even though it's not said in this episode of hinting towards uh, that longing that Mrs. Coulter has mm-hmm. to connect with Lyra. Yeah, it's obvious what she's doing here. Like, very obvious. And the ambition that stands in that way. Yeah. Gotta choose. Shouldn't have to. But we know what she chooses. Lyra, right? Yeah, I mean, it's also obvious when you get to that last book that she wanted to keep her deep down, but 
Asriel was cold and distant and would never have let that happen. Dude, it's gonna be, it's fucking hard to want to try and raise a kid on your own. Anyway. Yeah, and obviously, as we know, Coulter's a little interesting. Yeah. Pan makes Lyra up and because there's a noise in the pipes, and then Lyra shoves him off with a pillow, which, like, same. Oh, yeah, no, the cats attack the door all the time, and Emmett will be, like, 4 a.m., he'll just, like, go pick him up, put him in their spare room, lock him in, and be like, in two hours, you can come out. I feel like everyone shut the fuck up. Yep. I'm trying to sleep. I get it. Absolutely. <laughs> sleep is important, Lyra. The Egyptians in the next scene are looking for their children. They find evidence of Billy by his sweater left in an empty warehouse-esque kind of place with cots, empty cot frames. So we saw it a little last episode, and I'll dig into this a bit more in a, in a moment, but the fact that Billy Costa is symbolized here by his little sweater vest, which... <sighs> adorable. Billy Costa in his sweater vest. But now he doesn't have a sweater vest. He's still adorable. No, Anyways. <laughs> he's just the kind of kid who wears sweater vest. I love his big stupid glasses. He's I like, know! He's like mini cheaty. Oh. Just wanna... Just wanna give that boy a hug. Anyways, clothing <laughs> is a big part of uh, how we can understand the characters in this story. Yeah. Uh, Roger and Billy are the next scene and it flashes to them in cots, no longer empty. Celcilia is trying to see a way out, but she can't. Roger gives kind of a backstory for his aunt bringing him up, that he has no parents, and that Lyra is out there looking for them right now. Too bad Roger didn't have an older cousin named Dallas. That's all I'm saying. It was a really easy plug. Again, remember last episode when I told you that it was really easy to just appease the ten people that have finished La Belle Sauvage that Eliana isn't one of? I'm no, just kidding. No, I'm not. There's I'm more than a 10. zero of ten people. There's totally more than ten, but you're still zero of them, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a disappointment. Doesn't improve the number. Yeah, but that one's a shout out for our LaBelle Sauvagers. But yeah, there, there's a cousin that is right there. Yep. 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 In, in this scene, I noticed uh, Roger's voice, and this is what I was... Coming back to a little of what I was saying earlier of, like, Lyra replacing Roger with Will in a way. She doesn't exactly, but you can see it from Roger's voice, like, he has all this admiration for Lyra. There's a line in the books if he would follow her to the ends of the world, which, uh, he does. Yeah. Um, but, like, the way that he is described in The Amber Spyglass looking at Lyra and the way that Lyra's posture changes as she talks about Will and Roger looking at her sadly. Wow. Really, there's something. There's something there. Have you, you ever know? thought maybe, like, you should bring your current boyfriend on a trip to your ex to go, like, save him from the afterlife that's killing him? Every day forever with no end in sight? <laughs> Someone actually tweeted something like that today. Uh, really? Or maybe it was, another, it was another day. I don't know. It was pretty funny. It's like, imagine spending your whole life married to a woman, and then you die, and... And then you die and you're waiting for her in the afterlife. And then she gets there and then she breezes past you to go be with this man that she knew for three days on a boat. Anyway, everyone, let's watch Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, no, she she and Will knew yeah. each other for longer than that. They went through a fucking lot. But That's like, yeah, that was honestly like a decade in uh, his Dark Materials world, in my opinion. So Yeah, but... Lyra and Roger weren't at that point in their lives no, yet to like, realize. Yeah, they they didn't realize what romantic feelings were, but they were on the cusp and they slagged and, the fuck off on the rooftops of Jordan. Yeah, they were kids. Yeah, innocent. 
They they were, and but there's like some language in there that you see like hints of of like with Roger. Anyway, yeah. Will is a total mother duster. You know what I mean? I mean, he's basically Yorick as Ferguson. Yeah, as a human. Apparently, a that's the appeal. Yorick. That's the appeal. Young Yorick <laughs> to, um, to Lyra. Oh my god! So Hilarious. the next scene, Coulter is involved once more. She's buying Lyra a dress because she's the nicest caretaker mom ever. Um, she teaches Lyra how you dress as a woman is important for people to take you seriously. She dolls her up in blue. This is her, like I said earlier, playing dolls. And Coulter says it's her color, which, I mean, sure, but Coulter keeps wearing it. So I love that Coulter's projecting, this is your color, Lyra, because you're mine. By the way, you literally are. You're my daughter. Yes, and that's absolutely what she's doing, and again, clothing is a big part of the characterization in this show. There's actually a great article on Tor.com by Tyler Dean called What Setting in Costume Reveal About His Dark Materials Literary Agenda, and the author actually talks a little bit about how a costume setting allows people to interpret how this uh, show is very much in reaction to the Chronicles of Narnia. But here, as you said, Mrs. Coulter is projecting on Lyra. And this is actually another cue, I think, that's taken from the Golden Compass movie. We discussed it in our episode uh, about the Golden Compass, but Lyra's characterization comes through not only her type of clothing, but the colors. Like, obviously, she's like, oh, I can hardly move in this clothing about the restrictive nature of her relationship with Mrs. Coulter, right? But in the movie, she's kind of known by that red color. And here, again, Mrs. Coulter's projecting that blue onto her. And we see that almost all of her outfits and the colors match Mrs. Coulter's throughout her time with with Marissa. But slowly, the colors that Lyra wears begins to diverge a little from what Mrs. Coulter wears by the end at that party. She's wearing like a lighter, dustier, almost grayish blue. And Mrs. Coulter is wearing this like amazing deep green dress, right? And I, I wonder if we're going to see Lyra return to that red color in a bit as as she regains more of who she is outside of being Mrs. Coulter. But she might not. She She's going to don, I think, some of that Egyptian, Egyptian wear. Yeah, she's very adaptable, as we've learned, as far as where she fits in. You know, she wants to be a polar bear. She sleeps under the snow. She wants to be a witch. You know, she flies around on the deck and makes Pan be a burb in her brain. She likes to fit in, getting where you fit in, kid. She's just trying to find her flock. That's all she's ever been doing, is trying to find herself among people, among her flock. And I don't know if she'll return to Red so much now that she knows Asriel's her dad, because that was if that was her thing before, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But she might. Who knows? I think she might go a little bleak for a while, right? We might not notice a lot about her clothing. She's going to be first captured and then move to the Egyptians and maybe nothing stand out outfit wise, but she's going to be in furs soon too, going north more. So maybe bland furs we'll see a lot of seal skins and such. I mean, it's practical. It, it, she's like in the mirror and she's playing with her dress, trying to get comfortable with it. And Pan like starts making fun of her and they both laugh about it. It's not too tense, but in a way you're like, Pan, don't be a dick. You know, let her play around with it, even if it's uncool because Coulter's dressing her up like a doll. At least let Lyra play with it. Let her explore that femininity, obviously. 
Yeah. And then Lyra says, like, if my uncle could see me like this, and Mrs. Coulter says, he'd be delighted. <laughs> she's totally being sarcastic, too, and you can see it on her face. She's like, he'd be delighted. Yeah. At the same time, I wonder if she kind of means it a little. Like, clearly she's frustrated with the way Lyra's been mm-hmm. brought up. And I think Lord Asriel is a little too. He's like, they didn't teach you fucking anything, did they? <laughs> yep. They tried. Yeah, they, but like you can't Not like teach. That. It's the wrong pedagogy for a child. Yeah, especially Lyra. Yeah, she's not just any child. Yeah, she's a child in a fucking college being taught university courses. Yeah, uh, it's like smart guy, but not. <laughs> what a great show. Anyways, yeah. Lord so, Boreal meets with the master. Yeah, Boreal wants to study Grumman's head, the head that Asriel brought in. The master's like, nope. Sure, not gonna let you do that because of Scholastic Sanctuary. And Boreal's like, yeah, but no one gives a fuck about Scholastic Sanctuary. Boreal then accuses him of uh, imbibing in heresy with Lord Asriel because of him visiting and speaking about dust. And because, oh, Jordan decided to fund his investigations. The master says it's Jordan's right to keep Grumman's skull because he's a scholar and he's protected there. Keep the skull... That was weird, though. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting that they've decided to make this skull like a big plot point in this way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, whatever, it spurs something. But anyways, so I missed this last time, but in the last episode, but this is a change from the books, right? We remarked upon how it becomes like a big thing, right? That they're saying that his head belongs here, but turns out in the books, Grumman is actually part of a different university. I believe it's a German one. And so yeah. they've really decided that this is this is part of the plot now. It could be worse, but like I, I'm totally sitting here like, okay. Adaptive. I don't really care. Yeah, I don't really yeah. care. It's easier than trying to explain like all the other stuff. It's unnecessary for him to be part of the other one and clearly this is part of the story that they're telling. So And it's I just very it smart to mold it all together. We'll keep talking yeah. about that. But I think it is smart. Also, the scene, it was in the trailers for the entire season, but of Lord Boreal sitting, then the Master's Raven flying behind him. Iconic. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. So dramatic. And then the backdrops during their interchange, I I just wanted to call this out. I thought it could be interpreted a little. I think they're paying a lot of attention, right, with their shots Mm -hmm. in this episode, in, in this series in general. Boreal, as he speaks behind him, is the altar, right, of whatever this church or chapel is, and behind him is all are all the saints, and so you get that sort of symbolism, that sort of setting of the magisterium is what's backing him, whereas for the master, what's behind him is this light, the door of the u- that goes into the rest of the university. So... Lyra is studying, very poorly, might I add, at the table with Mrs. Coulter. And Mrs. Coulter has zero sympathy. She's not having it. Lyra is like, I just want to adventure and find Roger instead of reading. Mrs. Coulter's like, didn't I literally tell you to trust me? Like, why are you acting out like this? And Pan's kind of huddled, like, in her lap during all of this. And it's very sad, right? Like, I was just, like, bummed because you could see Pan, like, super small. Being like, "Mm." You could feel... The tension. Yeah. His eyes are so big and his nose is so small and pointy. I know. He looks so like my cat. Oh, cute. Okay. <laughs> Done. Coulter starts telling her about electrons and Lyra finishes her sentence for her and says she knows this because of dust. Coulter's like, interesting. What do you know about it? And she's like, 
kind of gives her a half-assed answer. A little bit of lying. She does give the truth that it does not affect children. She obviously is like a kid. She does not get all of it. Uh, and then she's like, oh, yeah, I learned it from a visiting scholar, not from watching Asriel's thing. And the monkey is, like, audibly unhappy during all this. You can hear the monkey making, like, whimpering, like, upset noises. That was a great touch. Yeah. Man, it must be inconvenient having a demon. <laughs> Gives you away every time. Feel. I know. You gotta have a weird insect. Like everyone else uh, in the Magisterium. I am. Uh, yeah, the bug demons? No way. The scene shows you that Lyra's a fucking troll, right? <laughs> She's a fucking troll and is good at uh, figuring out what to say to push buttons and get a rise out of people. As well as how she lies. Yeah, uh, Coulter just was all like, don't lie to me in the bathtub at her. But here she is lying to her right now and Coulter's missing it because Lyra's actually a pretty good liar. Right? We learn that she's a great liar. She gets that from her parents. She uses the charisma. But Coulter is totally... This one's slipping by her. I like that. Yeah. Lyra has a hilarious mannerisms, though, where she, like, puts her head in her fingers, like, like this. Like, ah, oh, this is so tedious. Yeah. <laughs> we cut to a scene of Macosta breaking a cup on the bu- boat. On the butt. God damn it. She fucking, touched the butt. Finding Nemo shit. <laughs> Tony wants to help her clean up the cup, and she's like, no. And he's like, I want to go with all the Egyptian leaders. And she's like, no, also. So we talked a lot about the rights of adulthood uh, that comes through the Egyptian scene last time, but I am really, really enjoying the direction that they've gone in this, right? By having Tony have his own storyline. They're rather than it's not just that the Egyptians have their own storyline, which they do. There's a lot of focus on Tony, and that's giving us another lens of the transition into adulthood through his perspective and trying to like live up to the role of what adulthood is in the Egyptian world, right? Of what it means to be like maybe a man or a man of the family by being allowed to go on on these sorts of adventures and raids in contrast with Lyra's own transition into adulthood, especially if Pullman sees the story as being about that. And I think that that's part of why we're getting Benjamin DeRoyder's story, right? And they're going to play off Benjamin's death as not just like, oh, it's dangerous and the spies, but it's going to be a big thing for Tony's story. It's people building. It's world building. It's, yeah. I'm over, I guess, the Tony Macario stuff, whatever, fine. It's Billy Costa. Yeah. And it does work. It's an obvious adaptive choice because it makes you give a crap about these people. They are a people. They are a whole people and they are fighting for their own loved ones uh, yeah. to be able to live. And I think that's what's kind of important about what they're highlighting. They're really fleshing them out. They're really going to make it hurt. It's going to suck yeah. when Costa gets Billy back and he's broken. Uh, that's going to suck. Whatever happens there, we'll see. But Yeah. What I'm curious about is how they're going to mm-hmm. keep the Egyptian sort of storyline going into, you know, season two, three, and four. So I think it- with a lot of the stuff they're pulling forward... I think they're pulling it forward for a reason, so they can reintroduce the Egyptian plotline faster. Okay. So here's my theory, and we'll talk about this as we get into more of the sporeal stuff, but I think the subtle knife might not be what we end in the second season. I think we start Amber Spyglass in the second season, and I think we end maybe, I don't know, like the bomb, or like 
Lyra in the cave is the cliffhanger of season two. I don't know, something. But I feel like there's just so much more in the amber spyglass than there is in the subtle knife to cover. Uh, And we're already introducing these elements. So I'm wondering if they're splitting amber spyglass, which they should. I think it's enough to cover two seasons. (laughs) There's so much shit in it. Yeah, I think ending with Lyra in the cave is a good, Mm good ending spot. It's a cliffhanger. You end with Coulter over her unconscious body. Yeah. Wiping her brow and it's creepy and that's the cliffhanger. That's a good ending spot. Uh, so John Fa, Fartacorum, and some of the other leaders amongst the Egyptian men show up, and turns out Ma Costa's name is Maggie. Oh, Ma Costa. That makes sense. Oh. Yeah. You know, it's where the Ma comes from. I wonder if that's canon. I want to ask him. We should ask him. Tweet it. Philip Pullman, can you tell me about your views on the Mortal Kombat game from the 90s and about the canonicity? Oh my gosh. Maggie. I am going to tweet it. I feel like it's very in character for me to tweet at Philip Pullman while we're podcasting and he will never (laughs) respond. He might one day. You never know. What do you think about Mortal Kombat? (laughs) The 1992 video game? Exactly. It's very important in my opinion uh, as a monkey born 92-er. As a Mrs. Coulter's monkey's demon. It all it all intersects. It all means something. I knew Chloe. it, Philip. I knew it. Um, <laughs> uh, so they present Ma Costa with Billy's sweater. She's kind of upset. Uh, her and John Foss share this intimate, close moment where he's like, come on, Maggie. Like, you know they have him. Let us go get him back. Joe Bradley, one of her friends on the internet, was saying that she thought that John Fa and Ma Costa were in a relationship from this scene, and it is a very intimate moment. Uh, it shows him grabbing her hand and getting really close in the face, and, you know, all signs point to, yes, intimacy, but I also think it's the type of charismatic ruler John Fa is, and I don't think it was meant to say they were together at all. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same, and but I can see why the scene would be interpreted like that, right? Like, there's a saying or something in stage direction or acting of, like, you only get that close to someone, like, there's, I don't know... Mm-hmm a delineated space or whatever if you're going to kiss them or kill them yeah but i i agree i I saw it as more of like he cares deeply about his people yeah it it felt very much so like maggie this is what we've been trying to tell you i'm sorry but we have to move on and we have to find them yeah and then we get to the magisterium our father mcphail has to deal with the cardinal who's like mrs coulter is bad she's better her fucking job also, Job, and by that I mean Gob, sucks. And he's also like, the Egyptians also suck. And this entire fucking endeavor is risky, even if it's hashtag good for us. <laughs> the Cardinal is obviously above Father McPhail. And he's like, I come with orders to tell the GOB they need to cool it, or they'll lose everything. And he's like, then it ends and... Father McPhail is staring at the magisterium symbol, just looking up, very, you know, disassociative. I think it's interesting that so many people in the magisterium have, like, bug demons. Yeah, because they're the insects and locusts ruining this world. Locusts is interesting in the context of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Open that seal, baby. Um. <laughs> so the noise in the pipes has come back to Coulter's apartment. Lyra finally believes him. She's like... All right, Pan, you might be onto something here. They explore the hallway, they follow the pipes, and they end up following them to the secret study. 
that they're not supposed to be in and open the door and find the monkey, but no Coulter. Dun dun dun! Mrs. Coulter ends up waking up, looking for Lyra, and she's very far from her demon. The demon suddenly appears next to her, and Lyra's like, that's that's weird, that's not natural, and she says something like, about the pain, and Mrs. Coulter says, oh no, you're wrong, my demon was here the whole time, and this is kind of like a, an info dump-ish for those who are not familiar with having read the book series, right? Kind of just telling them, like, this is weird. Anyways, uh, Mrs. Coulter puts her back in bed, closes the door, and then smacks her demon. Very fucked up, very much so signifying that self-loathing we've been talking about, and very taboo. You don't just hit your pet. <laughs> yeah, especially when you understand that it's also, like, hurting yourself. I was just gonna and, say, stop hitting yeah. yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. And the monkey looks so sad and pathetic in that moment, as opposed to, I don't know. The way that it's kind of portrayed in the movie, maybe even in the books, because this scene doesn't happen in the books, right? The hitting of her own demon is is a direction that we do see in the Golden Compass movie. It is a very interesting detail. They kept it in, in this direction as well. When you look at La Belle Sauvage, you have a character named Gerard Bonneville that is a little violent with his demon, and I won't go into detail to do any spoiling since it's outside of the main trilogy, but... You do get that feeling that he's very charismatic and at ease when you talk to him, and then his demon is just like, what's off-putting? That's the same thing with Coulter, right? When you speak to Coulter, her eyes don't really meet her smile. She's very charismatic, and she can talk the talk, but the second she's alone with her demon, you see she crumbles. It's really interesting as a character, and I really want to harken back to our second episode, I want to say it was. Was it episode two of His Dark Materials, Northern Lights, Golden Compass? where I mentioned that there were theories on the internet that I had read a bunch of and totally agreed with as soon as I read anything about this scene, about Coulter and her demon being separated, whether it was through experimentation, whether it was through she objected, yes, I want to have the surgery and try it, uh, whatever it was, almost like, you know, choosing this is what I want to choose to stop the pain of adulthood. Uh, It feels almost like she did that. And the passage from the book, is Mrs. Coulter seemed to be charged with some kind of anbaric force. She even smelled different. A hot smell, like heated metal, came off her body. Lyra had felt something of it earlier, but now she was seeing it directed at someone else. Poor Adele Starminster had no force to resist. Her demon fell limp upon her shoulder and flapped his gorgeous wings once or twice before fainting, and the woman herself seemed to be unable to stand fully upright. Moving in a slight awkward crouch, she made her way through the press of loudly talking guests and out of the drawing room door. She had one hand clutched to her shoulder, holding the swooning demon in place. Well, said Mrs. Coulter to Lyra. I never told her anything important, Lyra said. What was she asking? Just about what I was doing and who I was and stuff like that. As she said that, Lyra noticed Mrs. Coulter was alone, without her demon. How could that be? But a moment later, the golden monkey appeared at her side, and, reaching down, she took his hand and swung him up lightly to her shoulder. At once, she seemed at ease again. So, interesting reveal that Coulter can pretty much separate from her demon. That's kind of what we learned this episode. They decided to reveal that, and... There is that metallic scent. I kind of theorized that it was supposed to be similar to the metal alloy that separates 
you know, the guillotine that separates human and demon. And I feel like this was a confirmation of that. I don't know if she has intercision, right? Because there's clearly still a connection. Yeah. I wonder if it's like she's able, something happened that she's able to tolerate the pain more, or I don't know. Because in the passage you read aloud, right? She took his hand and swung him up slightly, lightly to her shoulder once she seemed at ease again. And I'm not saying that people like get more used to pain, right? But it's right. she hits her demon, right? So it's like canonically, it has to have been like they yeah. had to separate physically, not with the metal. But the fact yeah. that there's that metallic scent really makes me think that that metal alloy was involved and that she had to undergo it for some reason. It, it makes me. Maybe it's just adding to the tragedy that is Mrs. Coulter and how awful she is, but also that uh, vulnerability to her. But it, that fact that there's that metallic scent with her anger, that mm-hmm. makes me think that she was separated physically with some sort of metal alloy from her demon. Especially because she's the poster woman for this experimentation on children. There's that or like, it almost sounds like she's taking something like that has to do with the metal. I don't know. But Maybe. like, I mean, she takes this beyond even the idea of taking like the something that could make the metal smell like that. I mean, yeah. it's more also the joy she gets from these children the being sent yeah. to these centers. In that self-loathing sense, it feels like she hates it because she's had it done. You know, but she also was like, good, someone else should suffer. Mm-hmm. It's like the system that nourished her for so long, even though it really didn't, it rejected her. She refused to see that. And now she's like, keep going for them. Yeah. The system that made me this way. Or she keeps th- hoping to find a child that'll end up like her. Mm-hmm. Right. Insanity, and, basically. Yeah. Because like, she's not completely, yeah, she's not completely severed. Right. In the way that like the other people at the station, as we see, are. It's interesting. So Boreal is hanging out doing some Boreal things with a snake demon. Snake. Snake. Has, he's uh, looking for Stanislaus Grumman in the crypts of Jordan. He finds Stanislaus's skull, but then he's like, it ain't Stanislaus's skull. Asriel's a motherfucking liar. Who saw that coming? Not me. <laughs> how could i'm i just want to know how he knows right right absolutely just just from like looking at this skull and his like weird snack going through its hole like what are you telling you boreal did you like just like i don't know did you touch stanislaus grumman's skull a lot? he does he like rubs his right like he rubs but, like, the before. skull though after like why that's it yeah. that's how you know like how many if questions yeah but like before like when when he was with Stanislaus Grumman, was he like, can I touch your your head hole, dude? So what I want to know is, like, how well do you know Stanislaus Grumman's head? And maybe it's selfish because this Boreal is a rather dashing gentleman. Mm. Not saying book Boreal's not a dashing gentleman. He's just a little uh, older than I personally am willing to pork in this timeline. And I'm just saying that maybe... Maybe Boreal and Grumman. Maybe that's the ship now. We don't know. Could be. Could be. But Boreal then is like, shit, to his demon. He's like, we need to cross. And that's when like I started freaking out and shaking like the noisemakers and going, oh my god. And he yeah. walks and walks and they go outside and they go through this cool gardeny dead area. They find a window it's a glass-like mirror, kind of tr- translucent, greenish, glows ever so slightly, but also not quite there. 
and they hop on in there. Off they trot, him and his slithering demon, and they come out in another world, a world similar probably to someone like you or I, where there's technology and sirens and cars. It's Will's world, I'm pretty sure, which is our world. Mm -hmm. He watches a cop drive off, and then he gets in a car and he waits, and he just plays on a smartphone. Yeah, he he messages someone, but I couldn't read the message. I'm like, whatever. It says it, it's three a.m. and it says you up. <laughs> <laughs> you know who it's to. It's three a.m. He's texting Stanislaus Grumman. <laughs> he tried. Then we have Lyra consulting the lithiometer, and Mrs. Coulter is guess over, and Mrs. Coulter tells her you got to stay put. Father McPhail shows up, and Father Garrett, the character's name is, or Fra Pavel. Is what I'm going to call him because, you no, know, whatever. He's supposed, to, he's supposed to be Father Gomez, I think. That's what I was thinking. I think he's going to cover both Gomez and Fra Pavel yeah. is what it seems because they're not obviously calling him Fra Pavel. They're calling him Garrett. Yeah. That's literally his name. So Father Garrett, Father Gomez, Fra Pavel, similar enough. Yeah. But he's very tense and he stares at Lyra. There's no frog demon. It's the bug demon and the bug's like crawling on his face. It's real gross. He's <laughs> a beetle. Well, Father Gomez has a has the beetle demon. Mm-hmm. In. Yeah, so that's why I was like, maybe I think it's supposed to be a mixture. I think that's what yeah. they're doing here is remixing it, but just fine. <sighs> yeah, I don't care about Father Gomez that much. Well, here's the deal: is like, you know what the best part about Father McPhail sending out Gomez is? It's in the name. Or, he's gonna yeah, McPhail. He's gonna McPhail. Yeah, that's it's it. exciting. That's a thing. They McPhail. Mrs. Coulter realizes Lyra's in the hall. Fra Pavel slash Father Garrett slash whatever. Finds her spying, and Mrs. Coulter comes out, and she's like, go to your room, like, don't talk to her, leave my assistant alone. It's so smart, though, because it establishes they see Lyra as kind of one of Mrs. Coulter's vulnerabilities here. They don't really know the extent of who it is, but they know, like, oh, there's another person here we can leverage against Mrs. Coulter. So it kind of sets up the bomb super well. Yeah, I I didn't even think about that. I think you're right. That's part of why... Mrs. Coulter didn't want them to see her. It sets up the cave. Yeah. It's a fascinating scene in the study, and I'm sure someone else has pointed it out, where earlier in the episode, you have Mrs. Coulter telling Lyra she can teach her different ways, right, to um, get men to do what she wants, and you have Mrs. Coulter kind of kind of doing some of that, right, kind of flaunting a bit of her sexuality as she puts things into her bra. She offers Father McPhail some tea and he's like no thank you then she offers him some water and he's like no thank you i'm not thirsty mm. and obviously like in 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 slang terms right now we all know what thirsty means right <laughs> yep and he's like no nah, i'm not thirsty but he's not eating what she has to offer exactly which is a very it's it's the opposite of what happens in the garden of eden right so he keeps i don't know maybe some of that innocence or like purity or whatever he might have going on or might not. I don't know. But he refuses Eve's temptations if you can. It's if you very much a failed seduction. Very much yeah. so. Very failed. But she takes advantage of Lyra being in the hall to regain the upper hand, which is very fascinating. Lyra misinterprets it, I think, as Mrs. Coulter being angry and losing control. And I think that's why Mrs. Coulter's like, no, I didn't lose control. Because what she did was use it to get the men to get out of her house. Mm-hmm. It was an escape route, though. It was. But like she didn't quite lose control in that moment. She was trying to 
regaining yeah, it anyway, but this gave her an opening. And it's interesting because when she invites Father McPhail into her study, right, she get, allows him to take a seat, and she takes a seat as well. She's not standing. She's allowing them to be equals, and she's lounging in her other, like, fucking mid-century modern chair. Mm-hmm. I do think it's quite fascinating that she has a study. Mm-hmm. It's brought up at the beginning, but again, I'm going to keep coming back to how she says we're the only women here in this Arctic Institute. And I think a study during this world that Mrs. Coulter is coming up in is very much a male-coded thing to have. Mm-hmm. Hell, having a whole fucking floor of a penthouse. Oh, absolutely. Power moves. Exactly. For her to have her own study and just her using it and her living there doesn't belong to a man. I think absolutely tells you what kind of woman she is. She's a woman who has ambition and is working and is trying to like make her way in a world that's just ruled by men. And it's her own business, right? Yeah. And obviously, unfortunately, she doesn't care who she stomps upon to get there. But uh, that's a different story, but she did make her way. And also there's the fact that they're on her territory. Her saying, get the fuck out of my house is normal here. Like she, this is her whole entire owned level. Get out of there. You don't, all you have is the magisterium where you serve. She serves no one. She serves herself in science and what she's learning and finding. Yeah, her place is decorated very differently than the magisterium, which is not. Mm -hmm. Pan tells Lyra she needs to hide her lithiometer as Mrs. Coulter sees the men out. Lyra puts it in her purse and keeps it on her. Coulter corners McPhail and she tells him, this is a big opportunity. And McPhail says that they have to preserve the power of the magisterium over everything. It comes first. And I love this line. I feel like there's probably more to it, but I'm not there. I'm not grasping it. Uh, whispers become weapons in the wrong hands. I think there's a lot of different ways that can be interpreted. Yeah, like prophecies about Lyra. Yeah, prophecy telling your own story when you're whispering as a dead person in the underworld. Yes. I was definitely thinking of the uh, the different kind of undead, the specters, mm-hmm. etc. Coulter criticizes Lyra's new purse she's wearing, and Lyra pokes at her kind of and pushes. And it's like, you lost control with the men. After she had just apologized for being short with Lyra. Uh, and she finally, like, Coulter just is so immature back. She's like, your bag's silly. And Lyra's like, it's the only thing I like. And then we get the iconic scene, as we've talked about. Iconic. The golden monkey strikes. It was every bit as scary and intimidating as it should be. My stomach was twisting. It was uh, it, very intense. Very intense. The the monkey's just, like, looking poised to attack. But not like he's really hungry for it. He's just like... Tell me what to do, boss, maybe? I don't know. Very much like it was waiting, like just waiting. The whole conversation was obviously there was going to be a fight, but the tension had to go back and forth first. Yeah, and it it keeps looking at Mrs. Coulter for cues. Mm -hmm. And the monkey is so interestingly portrayed differently. We've talked about it already. But the monkey's scary in its own way, but it's not like that weird, like, terrifying. It's... there's so much pain on its face. It's so sad in the study. It's sad and crouched over and terrified when it's seen. Like in the in the bathroom scene, it's not looking at Mrs. Coulter and it's just sad. Yeah, it, it's so pain, and uh, we we later on see her longing on the monkey's face to love Lyra. I don't know. Yeah, and, and we learn like Coulter has obviously shut that part off. Whether it was through. A physical severing by force or physical severing by she actually separated herself. Uh, She's shut that off. That whole maternal longing has been shut off from Lyra. It's been severed. 
she struggles with coming back to it and trying to get into it. But she also is struggling with the side of her that loves and wants and craves power. Um, and then she also does crazy shit, right? Like kidnapping and drugging her daughter. You know, normal people shit. Normal people shit. It's very complex. Very complex. Not every person would understand it. You have to have a very high IQ to understand <laughs> Marisa Coulter, Nay Van Z. Oh my god. I want that to be a meme. Ugh. Then Mrs. Coulter tells Lyra if she continues the way she's being, you know, after the demons wrestle on the floor, they will have a con- confrontation and she's going to win. Uh, it's all just so, like, textbook literally from the book and I'm just like, it gives me chills. Yeah. Then Lyra says a very shoujo manga thing. She says, the men just upset you. This isn't, this isn't you. This isn't who you it are. It is. It's called Internal Asmisogeny. But also, I think she just doesn't want her to be that. She's yeah. like, okay. I mean, no, it's literally also textbook <laughs> Cersei Lannister, right? Like, that's what this is. Yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, there's so much. Similar. Coulter basically, like, flips on her. is like, you're going to be sweet and nice and charming all night at this party. You're going to be perfect. And Lyra's like, my uncle would never do any of this to me. And she really flips. And she's like, when has that man done anything for you? He's done nothing for you. And then she reveals that Asriel is Lyra's father. Whoa, this is episode two. I think this is a scene that kind of shows you a little that, no, earlier she wasn't mad. This is yeah. her mad. And emotional. Uh, you know how women are yeah. when they're emotional. Maybe she's on her period. but. Oh my God. Mrs. Coulter just revealed such a vital piece of the plot about a man. Um, but I liked it. Am I arrested for saying I liked it? Because I liked it. I think it worked. A, a little less on the whole, because afterwards Lyra's like, well, who was my mom? And she's like, I don't know, some hussy. <laughs> but it works for the moment. I guess that makes that betrayal deeper for Lyra when she finds out it's Coulter. Even though it's like opened your eyes yeah i it's pretty obvious from the way she reacts but at the same time like so something that i wonder is did she truly lose control in revealing that asriel was lyra's father or is she doing what lyra did in the study right where she lyra suddenly brings up dust and changes out like the dynamics like they're playing on the same game field yeah and and in doing so what she does is redirect Lyra's displeasure, or she tries to, she doesn't succeed, but she tries to redirect Lyra's displeasure at her towards Lord Asriel. That, that's what I'm not sure. Did, was it truly lo- her losing control, or was it a somewhat calculated move, uh, a manipulative move to try and uh, get Lyra, distract Lyra from how she's feeling towards Mrs. Coulter in this I moment? I do feel like it might be a little column A, column B, because it was triggered by... Lyra saying, like, Asriel wouldn't do this, and Coulter going, oh, fuck you! Like, Asriel didn't give a shit about you your whole life. Like, he visited maybe annually, and from afar he was like, don't be bad, and be nice to the scholars. And she's like, but I, like, orchestrated all these things to get you here. And, you know, she's like, I've been plotting for six years on how to get you to be my daughter. It, it, it Maybe it just feels unfair, and I think that unfairness is what triggered this for her to be like, what the fuck? And she has this line, so like, you know, like I said, Lyra's like, who's my mother? And she's like, well, he was kind of a hoe, you know, hooked up with side chicks all the time. He took you to that college. They couldn't protect you. They had hideous interior design, by the way. And that's when Lyra's like, that's too far. Like, you insulted Jordan? Mm -hmm. Like, how dare you? Um, And Coulter tries to save it. And she's like, 
Lyra, our origins don't define us. It's what we do with what we have, which is meta because, you know, she's Lyra's mom. Um, kind of, I guess, her her own everybody's special line compared to Asriel yeah. here. And then we get the beautiful cinematic shot of Lyra crying inside her room with the alethiometer, asking it for help and what Coulter is and where Roger is and where her dad, Lord Asriel, is. I thought that was a good touch. Uh, and Coulter yeah. is crying a little bit outside the door herself, but she wipes her tears and picks herself up because she has a job to do. Yeah. I do like that, again, Ruth Wilson nails it with the look that Mrs. Coulter gives Lyra when Lyra's like, I would like to be alone right now. And Mrs. Coulter wanting to nod. But I do respect that she respects Lyra saying, I want to be alone right now. You know, she knew she couldn't do anything and, better there. Yeah, and so she's like, "All right, I get it." And that that is a somewhat good move to let Lyra have her space and privacy. And yeah, having that direction of Lyra crumpling and Mrs. Coulter crumpling outside that mirroring. There's so much that's similar about them. Also, I think this is the case in the previous episode. I have to look again at how Daphne Keen's eyebrows are styled. I think that's another hint. <laughs> Their, eyebrow- their eyebrows are the same, okay? They, they did a good job with a lot they of this have casting. They the same eyebrows. They all work. Uh, God, Ruth is so good as Coulter. She's, like, perfect. Yeah. Like, Nicole Kidman was actually great, even though everything about that movie was a little sloppy. And we obviously talk about why in our Patreon episode. But Nicole Kidman had the idea somewhere deep down. I don't think she executed it perfectly, but I... I Felt that cold charm, right? That cold, like, I'm going to cut your demon away from you, but also you're my daughter and I'm very narcissistic and I have to have you. Um, yeah. But Coulter does that. Ruth Wilson does that for Coulter in this. And she brings that secondary and third level of just complexity of, you know, you feel her insecurities. You feel what she's had to sacrifice as a woman trying to rise to power, whether or not the power is bad. We don't have to go into that. We know the power she's trying to obtain slash has obtained is very awful. Um, But you can see her struggle to the top and that struggle for power and what it's done to her and it's eaten her from the inside out. She's rotten. Yeah. She's doing a masterful job of executing all of that. I mean, I just said all that to you and that's what she made me feel. So, doing great. Yeah. And then we get a scene of that other world again Mm -hmm. of Lord Boreal in a cafe. He meets an acquaintance in our world. He says he's looking for a man with an Osprey demon. Interesting. What could it mean, Eliana? I think he's looking for Seraphina Pacala, right? I'm gonna fucking scream. Don't even bring that up this episode. <laughs> you guys, Kaiza is a falcon. <sighs> Anyways. Give us the Affleck goose. <laughs> Who could it mean? Dunno, I don't know anyone with an Osprey demon and he couldn't be Stanislaus Grumman and he couldn't have a son that was in the episode three trailer with a picture in an envelope from Boreal. Anyways My little boy The guy that he's talking to is a total made up character, apparently. His name according to captions is Thomas, and according to people credited for starring in the episode, it's Thomas. The only other Thomas in these books is Lord Nugent, the Chancellor of Britain, so it's not him. Interesting, though, yeah. he's in a totally a different name. room. Yeah, and this guy is a common guy, it feels like. So, yeah. one-off guy, whatever. Interesting. But they discuss how there's multiple windows likely in the world, not just the one that he's found. Hmm. 
Interesting. Speaking of multiple windows, so there's that and the, d- the direction and how this scene is framed is really great. So the first way that we see Lord Boreal sitting in the cafe is through a window. And then it cuts to another window and you see their conversation. And again, it keeps showing us them through a window. And you can tell because of the reflections until finally you come inside and hear their conversation because they're like, all right, we had our fun. You know what's more fun? It reminds me mm-hmm. of Sitagaze in the cafe. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like a, a little yeah. like dig at like the very first scene with Will and Lyra's meeting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I felt good I about that. A- Cafes are places for people to meet. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of people talking, oh, this is God. actually not a great segue. This is a terrible segue. Mrs. Coulter and Lyra chat about Roger. Is it is it a Girls Gone Canon episode if I don't completely fail on a segue? Sometimes I have to let you talk, Eliana. I mean, like, there's no other choice. I can't just keep talking. Okay? God, I have to let you speak once in a while. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it, it feels good when you do a bad segue. It feels like home to me. I'm so glad. I'm home when I'm with you on Girls Gone Canon. Oh, God. Uh, Coulter... Kind of comes to Lyra and she's like, so I've been doing some research and I kind of feel like maybe Roger is still at Jordan. She's like, he could just be hanging out in the college anywhere. Lyra's like, uh, someone from Jordan would tell me so. And Coulter's like, honey, Jordan has moved on from you. You should move on from Roger. Which, to be fair, could be a very confident piece of advice if this was later in her life with like a bad boyfriend. But right Uh now, I don't know about that. I feel like she's real focused on Roger for a reason. Lyra calls- Because he was taken. Yeah, right, by someone. Lyra, as Liam Neeson, I don't know you. Lyra has a certain set of skills. Yeah, she does have a certain set of skills. I know, I've been thinking that the whole episode, honestly. (laughs) Oh my god. Someone should- Wait, someone should actually remix- that the scenes from yeah is it me to be a taken trailer i think it could be you oh no oh and the running on the rooftops that happens a lot and i think taken too Mm, straight taken too oh my gosh (laughs) the best part about those is the key and peel sketches okay Uh, liam neeson's god lyra calls mrs coulter a liar and the most memeable thing of all of 2019 is mrs coulter just going interesting I was yelling when that happened on the screen. I was hitting my partner again. Like I told you, I was very drunk. And (laughs) I was just very excited because I was like, I need to meme that. I stopped so many times to make gifts. Um, I did. I was like, the second, uh, at one point, we get to see Fardercorum and his demon. And I am a pure fan of Fardercorum's demon, Sofanax. My child, Sophie. Sophie is the best demon, and you get to see her in this episode clearly. She was in episode one. It wasn't quite as clear. It was very brief, but she's in this episode, and by golly, what a shot. Her autumnal coloring, her spots, oh, we're so lucky. But so between that and Mrs. Coulter going, interesting. Those are probably the best moments of the episode. I digress. I posted a picture in our notes that we're looking at of food. It so good. The food in this scene, the breakfast, the brunch that Lyra is having with Coulter is great. There's like some eggs and they have some caviar on them. There's some lox. There's some little sausages with some cheese on it, some garlic, some other stuff. There's a fig. Yeah, a fig. There's some prosciutto, it looks like. There's just, 
It looks so good. It's very protein heavy. Like, is what is Lyra fucking bulking? What's happening here? I mean, she's an orphan, Eliana. It's kind of like the uh, the witch in the woods with Hansel and Gretel. You know, she's like, here, Roger, here, Lyra. The better to eat yeah, you with. That's true. But Lyra's like, I don't want your good food. <laughs> this looks so good. Okay, Pan and Lyra quote-unquote study and mrs coulter locks him in the apartment to run an errand for work pan says he doesn't think she's been looking for roger at all they crawl around in the vents to get to the study because it's locked they realize the monkey has been doing this the whole time and coulter and him are definitely separated flash between this at the same time coulter is entering a very broken down abandoned looking building She's visiting a bunch of children, including Roger and Billy. She's charming some of these dirty orphans by telling them they're going on adventures and that she's here to help them write letters to their families because most of them cannot read and write. Lyra is reading G.O.B. letters and Coulter is writing a letter for Billy. Coulter comes to Roger, but Roger is like, I don't have parents. I want to write to my only friend in the whole world. And He looks her straight in the eye and he's like, her name's Lyra from Jordan College. What a smart boy. Oh, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. He tells her that they're going on a trip to the north. He asks Lyra what she's found and says that she would be surprised at who's taking them. Well, by the time she would ever read this, which is check, never, I don't think she'd be surprised. Um, uh, He could definitely get to say I told you so, like we talked about last episode, and he's like, Oh, don't say I didn't tell you so when this happens, because here it is. It's happening. I do love that we see Roger writing his own letter, right? Mm. I, I, I do think it's so interesting, that that detail, right? That he learned to read and write, uh, having grown up at the college, while the other children have to rely on Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're you're right. He and takes it. She's a little surprised. She's like, oh, okay. God, just finish LaBelle Sauvage so we can talk about this deeper. Um, but he did, and it's interesting that it gives him the autonomy, right? It gives him kind of that agency that Roger gets to write his own letter, even if it means nothing, obviously, in the end. He gets to write his own letter. He gets to be a part of his own story actively, which is something, obviously, we don't get in the book so much. I mean, the most characterization Roger gets is when he's an undead voice that Lyra's reading between pages. Yeah. I I, I really like- I do like it. Roger, yeah. Yeah. And he's very clever here. He knows who mm-hmm. Coulter is and that Coulter knows who he is. He's not stupid. He's also had to grow up being observant as a servant. Yeah. Like that's his whole role is that he has to be quiet, self-aware and understand what people make of him and what happens when people see him or see him places and vice versa. He has to know where people are and what they're going to do at all times. That's his whole yeah. survival instinct. And we saw that in the first episode, right? Because he tells Lyra, oh, I noticed you weren't at dinner when she's like, I wasn't there. And I think that's a that's something that's really important about how they're setting up Roger and all of this, because he and Lyra are both very clever, Yeah. right? It's not like he's more or less clever than she is. They're both clever, but he's unlucky, right? He didn't get to still like grow up. He, like they're both orphans. But she grew up in a nice room, and he was the one who brought her food. Yeah, and there's a lot to be said from that when you consider La Belle Sauvage and the Books of Dust and kind of like the servitude. Ugh, there's so much to be said of it. 
It, it's very weird, and it, you also have to consider, obviously, Azriel, who just manipulated Jordan College into funding him to go do some heretic bullshit. Mrs. Coulter, who they all are like, yeah, fuck that devil woman, but then she shows up and they're like, here's this kid you desperately want, even though I know she's unsafe with you. Yeah. Obviously, these people have power and influence. They've risen really high in their corporate scenario with the Magisterium. Azriel, maybe not so much. He's obviously a little more challenges authority. But Coulter has fit in and smiled and waved and showed a little ankle and, you know, gotten where she needed to go. Yeah. I mean, she's as smart as all of them. It's just that yeah. they don't always recognize it. Well, as a woman, sometimes you got to play stupid. She does, and she does it to Lyra sometimes. Mm-hmm. She plays stupid to her to try and get Lyra to trust her. Lyra, though, no, she's not, right? She discovers all these blueprints in Mrs. Coulter's study sneaking into it for buildings in the north which is really interestingly done we're getting her like being like what is the station as the children are told you're going to the station mm-hmm. on the other side and then mrs coulter goes and burns all the letters and the monkey just watches kind of sad very sad yeah the monkey and her finally are like all right we did our work and lyra and pan start discovering the silver guillotine and the blueprints that they're reading and the letters they're reading while Coulter is busy just smiling very softly after burning the letters. It's very chilling. Yeah. She comes home, and she and the monkey hurry to get to the bedroom, where Lyra and Pan are sitting so still, they're doing the whole studying thing again. She looks pleased. She pleads to see Lyra reading, who lies, of course, and pulls it off, and the monkey pets Pan, and it's very sickening because, like, you see the monkey hold and pet Pan, and it's very much so, like, a dominant act, and Pan submits to the monkey. You see a very visible submission from Pan. I read that scene differently. Really? Oh, the monkey, The monkey hesitates before petting Pan, right? And I saw it between that and the look on Mrs. Coulter's face, the monkey... Uh, and Pan, like, there is that power dynamic in that Pan is submitting, but I think I read it as Mrs. Coulter enacting that desire to try and have some sort of intimacy with her daughter, and the monkey petting Pan as that, trying to have that I think we might still see it similarly, because I saw that, but I also saw, like, the monkey saying, basically, you're still mine, right? Like, in the last hour that I left you here, nothing changed, right? Oh, it could be, yeah. More of, like, a, are you still ours? I don't know. Yeah. That's how I felt about it. The monkey was like, it was more of a, let me reassure myself that you are under my dominion. But obviously Lyra and Pan were like, yes, we are. Smile. Look into camera. Gotta get the fuck out of here. Um, uh, yeah. And then at nighttime, Lyra has gotten smart, right? Like she's safeguarding the room. She's got blankets hanging in places. She's like, don't fucking look at me. And she gets under the table with a blanket over the table and reads the alethiometer. And she is just discussing the blueprints with Pan and just looking at it. And she just doesn't understand anything about it. Like, why the Master gave it to her? Is it to take to Asriel? And why did the Master try to kill Asriel, then, if the lithiometer is for Asriel? None of it makes sense to her. I do just like the way that scene's set up. It feels very familiar. Yeah. The idea of, like, yeah. hiding under your blanket so your parents don't know that you're awake. Ben secretly there. still reading me reading these books <laughs> growing up felt good lord boreal is looking fly in some clothes in our world and then he just goes back through the window to the cool garden and then next thing we know there's the party scene yeah he's also at this party he's got an invite but yeah yeah he's totally on the way to this party that's why he passes through that window can't be late 
Adele Starminster, stylish girl, tries to seduce information from Lyra, who's the very popular person at this party, very much so like the books. Every person is stopping her like, oh, Lyra, we've heard all about you. Like, every person at this party knows that Lyra is Coulter's daughter, except Lyra. That's kind of how it feels. They're all like, oh, we love you, Lyra. We've heard so much about you. Uh, We're one of your mom's minions. We appreciate you. What? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Adele tells Lyra everything she needs to put pieces together on Marisa's (gasps) dot-dot-dot work, so to speak, quote-unquote. I don't really love, like I said earlier, that we don't see Adele getting flirty with the scholars to get information, but that's okay. Whatever. Uh, it's, It's just important for Lyra's femininity, but we'll figure it out going forward. I'm sure there'll be something. She's an okay journalist, but interestingly, you know, she she's one of the ones who doesn't know that in this version, right? She doesn't seem to know that Lyra is Mrs. Coulter's daughter because she's like, oh, that's smart. Get in close with the gobbler so that they don't take you. And Lyra's like, what? She's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, A, that would be so smart. B, if I had done it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, Lyra, immediately when she leaves the conversation, Coulter's kind of coming towards her, being like, who the fuck is that that was talking to you? Because, you know, Coulter's obsessive, controlling, abusive. And Pan is like, just keep your cool. Keep your cool. If you keep your cool, we can leave forever. And Lyra's like, yeah, it's fine. I'm getting more ice. And she leaves and just like walks straight to the elevator. And she's like, no, we need the alethiometer, Pan. We can't leave it here. So she goes to the bedroom to get it. And as she's doing that, Coulter is confronting Adele Warminster and Boreal is there and he's like, let me just take care of this. This is very much so Peter Baelish and Game of Thrones and Cersei Lannister, right? Like, Mm -hmm. let me take care of it. Ah, Gross. Yeah. This all intercuts with Lyra. She's climbing outside of the flat during the time that Starminster is being confronted and Coulter discovers she's gone. Lyra's running on the ground at this point, far and hard, and Boreal is shoving Adele into his car. And she asks him not to hurt her. He crushes her butterfly demon, and he heals over. A lot of people were talking about, like, oh, it's stupid she died, but I didn't think she died. Am I wrong? I don't see her as having died either. I don't think we're gonna get that until a little later. I don't think she's dead. I think, like, you're saying she's unconscious. Yeah, and I don't know, it, it, a lot of people were like, oh, like there was no dazzly, dusty, sparkly people death. But uh, I just didn't feel like it was death, like just because you crumpled the butterfly. Yeah, in the books, right, like they don't, the demons don't appear to turn into dust before Lyra's eyes. That's, I mm-hmm. thought that was just a thing in the Golden Compass. They just disappear. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, she just sees the demon suddenly disappear. I think that what we should get from the scene is not, is she dead or is she unconscious? I think the scene is in many ways for those who have not read the books. It reinforces what we saw when Lyra was attacked earlier and how she felt physical pain when Mrs. Coulter's demon was attacking Pan and that connection between the person and their demon. And then we also, it's not dug into here. Right, and uh, they're showing it as best they can instead of having to just tell the sort of like disgust and surprise yeah. on Adele's face when Lord Boreal even holds her demon because that's breaking the great taboo. It's huge taboo, and it's yeah. I saw a they lot of said it. I saw discussion going back and forth about this episode, and someone was like, 
that's ridiculous. People are calling it sexual, like, assault. And I'm like, it kind of is. Like, it very much so, he pushes her in. He's very much so close to being on top of her. And then he crushes her demon. Mm -hmm. And he flexes his power. Because, again, this episode is all about dominance and control. That's what it feels like. It's all about power. Who has power? Who does not have power? Who has power? But then it leaves. Who's is fleeting? Uh, That's what it feels like. And Adele Starminster is in a position of no power when she's pushed into that car. And then he crushes her demon. Uh, It's very much so disgusting. You're supposed to feel sick to your stomach because it's like a violation. It's a straight violation. And that's what the GOB and all these people are all about. Yeah. And I think that's what the scene is about, showing that it's disgusting and especially hammering that home for audiences who are less familiar. I mean, we just had priests of the faith show up at Maurice's house and say, hey, you need to chill because you're out of control and people are noticing and we aren't going to support you if you keep it up. And then the GOB sat there and threw a party and said, okay. Yeah, that's true. Because that's her sort of amassing that social power again in the face of the magisterium. Well, and then the next scene is such a contrast to mood and tone and just as disgusting and creepy. It's a very blank-faced nurse separating the kids to go north. They're all going out single file and they're holding each other's shoulders. So one hand on the shoulder. And it's like, I felt very unsettled. It was very unsettled imagery. We've been talking a lot about some of the trafficking of children, not just in the U.S., across the whole entire world, but just children and trafficking from many different eras in general, whether it's by Mm -hmm. a government agency, whether it's by a religious agency. They're both similar at this time. And... it's very unsettling. These kids are just walking out single file and they're just like, yep, keep holding your partner. Keep going. We're taking you somewhere adventurous and fun. Uh, It's disgusting. It was very unsettling to watch that again. Yeah. Which is good. Uh, It should make everyone uncomfortable. This should be uncomfortable. It should. And how they're just lying to the children. And as you see the danger that the children are in, Lyra and Pan, having escaped from the party, are running around. It's dark. They haven't found a place to sell yet. So they go uh, cry in a doorway about Mrs. Coulter and Asriel, and then pass out in an alleyway before Pan is lured out by a fox demon and a wh- and whistling. Yeah, that wailing noise comes up that... I can't whistle, so just pretend I did. But... <laughs> I can only do a very high-pitched whistle that summons dogs. Oh, don't do th- It would summon the fox demon in this oh. in this state, so maybe you should. Perhaps it would. So that guy is kind of the, the children collector that we've learned, obviously, in the last two episodes. It's very unsettling. I'm very unsettled. That's me. It's interesting that they went in this direction. This was one of the theories that, what, the Egyptians had of who the gobblers were, or a couple of them did, and they went a very Pied Piper kind of route. Yeah. Especially with the whistling and the music as being part of it. And we complained a little bit last episode about it, but the Coulter establishment of her with the letters and the children in the beginning and her getting the kids in the very beginning of the story and then working mm-hmm. to her like burning the letters. And you, you see that before she meets Lyra. So we know of the fear and the, the association with Coulter and how like, oh no, Lyra, stay away from her, but you can't do anything. You're a reader. So you watch Lyra fall from grace, no pun with the story intended, to Coulter and kind of be like, oh, she's so great and amazing. And it's different how they're doing it this time. I didn't like it last week. Now that I've seen that second episode, I feel fine with it. I'm not mad about yeah. it. 
I'm going to let Same. it ride out. I mean, I, I watched Game of Thrones, you guys. So. <laughs> yeah, I think they did a good job of how you're taken through the mounting horror mm-hmm. of Mrs. Coulter at the same time as Lyra is. And I feel like that is something that makes me more critical about these changes, right, from book to show, because I did watch Game of Thrones. I have watched the His Dark Materials Golden Compass movie. I've seen bad adaptations. I've seen things traded out for shock value. And I don't think they're doing shock value with a lot of these things that could be turned into it. I think they're, uh, I think they're doing it right. Uh, yeah, and I think part of how you know they're not just doing it as shock value is they're introducing elements that could be seen as a twist or shocking earlier on. Yeah, right? they're it's, it's episode in. two, yeah, and they're like, all right, we're doing the world building of their windows now. Yeah. I really won't be surprised if like we end with the bomb or we end with Lyra in the cave in season two at this point. Uh, I feel like they're really throttling ahead. Yeah, I think it's going to be the cave. Yeah. It just makes more sense to me as a good ending point. It feels like a but. really good cliffhanger. And like I said, I feel like Pullman might have had some direction too in saying, why don't you do this? This would be better. He might be able to correct himself. Yeah, I could see the bomb being end of season three, especially if they're splitting the Golden Compass and yeah. the other book yeah. into two. But we'll see. We'll see what they do. We'll see. Well, Aliana, what an episode. I give it... Dude, I might give it a 9 or a 10. It was up there. It was very good for a second episode. I was just freaking on it. I was sitting here just on the edge of my seat going, wow, what a great change. Wow, they incorporated this. Holy shit, that happened. Wow, Ruth Wilson. That was me, the whole episode. Yeah. I think that some people felt that the first episode was too, too fast, right? Maybe too plot heavy. I don't know. And I think that this episode slowed it down and just did a really good job of setting things up, especially with Mrs. Coulter and just investing in her character. So I I think that sometimes first episodes can just be weak also in general, right? They're just trying to lift a lot. Not for this show, for a lot of other shows. I didn't think the first episode was weak. I greatly enjoyed it. And this this has been such a promising second episode. Yeah, I feel like the first episode, I know I said it, so I guess I have a formal apology to make. Last episode, I said I felt like the first episode was tame. Now, watching the first and second episode in succession, I take it back. I feel like it's not tame. I feel like the second episode, they wilded the fuck out. And Mm -hmm. I feel like these two together are perfect. Two hours of amazing television that really is good storytelling. It's I'm not a stickler for, you know, like, oh, you changed it from the book when it comes to adapting right. And they're adapting correctly. Mm -hmm. They are adapting things correctly. They're keeping the tone. Coulter, some of the changes they've made with her work because it keeps that feeling that she's this tragic, awful woman that, like, you want to feel bad for, but you know she's garbage. Yeah. And you're conflicted. It's not just her who's conflicted in this story. It's us. We're conflicted about these characters, and they're selling it. Asriel is still probably the biggest weak spot for me. Hopefully next week, speaking of weak spot, they will put some of him in there because there was no Asriel this week. But I just, I do worry that I won't give a fuck about Asriel still, ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But that is what it is, I guess. I think it's fine to not. I say nine. I say nine. Nine out of ten. What does it take to get a ten? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that things will ever be it's perfect. True. But I I think I just come at a lot of media for the most part of 
there's a saying when people are doing public speak or something, right? Like, the audience is on your side. They want you to succeed because <laughs> they don't want to have to fucking sit through something that's terrible. And I, yeah, for a lot of media, right, I'm on your side. Like, I want this to succeed. I want to like it. And I do. I, I think yeah. that I'm really enjoying what we're, what we're getting out of His Dark Materials right now. Absolutely. Well, you guys, thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week as well with another episode of His Dark Materials. Girls Gone Canon watches his dark materials if you have not already make sure you check out our social media we are on twitter as at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n where you can tweet at us dm us you name it and talk about the episodes but you can also send us an email over at girls gone canon at gmail.com if you so choose send us something about the episode and uh you might hear yourself featured next week Yes, and of course, keep up with us. We don't only cover his dark materials. We started out doing a podcast, rereading the A Song of Ice and Fire books by each character's combined point of view chapters. So keep up with that and our watch of the His Dark Materials Season 1 on Spotify, on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, and, of course, where all of this is hosted, Podbean. Yeah, we have a handful of other places that are popping up, people say. You can check us out there, too, hopefully. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> we also have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash GirlsGoneCanon. We're still working at our Patreon episode for the month. We will have that announced very soon for you. It may be something to do with a song of ice and fire this month. However, uh, anyone that is a fan of the His Dark Materials series, we did just finish northern lights slash the golden compass if you have the u.s version and we may be doing lantern slides soon we would love to tear those apart so keep an eye out for that his dark materials fans yes and of course i have been one of your hosts eliana and i have been another one of your hosts chloe goodbye everyone lara oh my god goodbye <laughs>